useful. Um, and it's a question then of when you're looking at a particular text uh, in the Old Testament and you wonder how that would relate to the New Testament, then the thing is to ask whether one or other of these ways of seeing the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament works for this particular text better than others. Uh, if you like the background again, I put again at the top of that sheet there, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. Uh, the background is that declaration in 2 Timothy that says that, that all these um, scriptures, all these Old Testament scriptures are God-breathed uh, and profitable for, um, the, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So how does that work? Uh, and here are four um, ways of thinking about how it works. Um, and uh, each of them relates to one of those ways of looking at the scriptures as a whole that I was talking about before the break. So if you're thinking about narrative, thinking about uh, history, story, about the witnessing tradition, what then is the relationship between Old Testament narrative and New Testament narrative? Old Testament history and New Testament history. Um, and the, uh, the useful image, as I find it, is to think about Old Testament and New Testament as like the two acts of a play. The Old Testament is Act 1, the New Testament is Act 2. Uh, or maybe, given the relative size and the amount of time, you should say the Old Testament is Acts 1, 2, and 3, and the New Testament is Act 4. Uh, that wouldn't make it, wouldn't, doesn't make a great deal of difference. Um, the uh, usefulness of the image is to enable one to see how, uh, when you are thinking about a play uh, as a whole, you have to, you have to think about uh, both uh, the first part and the second part in order to understand either part. Uh, if you go to the theatre and you leave um, uh, at, the, uh, at the intermission, then you won't have got the play. Particularly if it's one of those kind of mystery things in which you don't find the answer. Uh, which, and obviously there's an element of that being a, a useful model for understanding the interrelationship of the parts of the scriptures. In order to understand Act... It's only after Act 2 that you'll, act, that you'll actually understand Act 1. You suddenly see the point about some things back in Act 1. It's reminding me now of um, that movie, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless, Spotless Mind. Uh, yeah, that's the one where it's, it's, you discover at the end that, it's, uh, that you, you need to go through it again. You, 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 the way you'd see the movie the second time is very different than the way you see it the first time, once you see it in the end. Um, you can't understand Act 1 without Act 2, so you, when you've got to the end of the Old Testament, uh, you, haven't got, you haven't got to the climax of the story of what God was doing in the world. Um, but neither, and this is much more the Christian problem, can you understand Act 2 without Act 1. But that's what church is trying to do all the time. Uh, but again, you can't come in at the intermission uh, of the play um, and expect to understand Act 1 when you haven't seen everything that's taken for granted uh, for Act... Uh, <coughs> did I say that right? When you come in when you see Act 2 and you haven't seen all the things that um, were taken for granted out of Act 1. Um, Mar uh, Matthew's Gospel doesn't use that language, but it kind of presupposes something like that assumption about the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament. Because uh, it, it, when it starts off uh, with its 17-verse summary of the entire Old Testament, um, it's a bit like uh, those um, uh, very fast bits at the beginning of a TV of an episode in a TV series when it says the story so far. It goes chop 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 chop. Well, that's what you've got in Matthew chapter 1. Um, starting off with uh, Abraham and taking you all the way down uh, to Jesus, all in 17 verses, by means of a series of snapshots of these different people. Um, 
which it's a passage that we miss out when we read Matthew's Gospel, um, uh, but we do miss out because of the significance of what Matthew is doing. Um, it's not surprising we miss it out because it seems kind of boring to us, uh, but I met somebody who was converted through those 17 verses, um, and she was converted because she was Jewish, uh, and that was what enabled her to, to see that Jesus was uh, her people's Messiah. Um, as she responded to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, in a way that Matthew would have appreciated. Uh, she, she was able to see that this Jesus who people had been talking about, it was the Act 2 to her people's Act 1. Um, and uh, Matthew's point is that you can only understand Jesus if you understand him against, that, um, against the background of that story. He's the climax of that story. Second way of looking at the relationship um, in terms of the Torah is to use the image of ideal and condescension. Um, oftentimes, particularly when re- people are reading the, uh, some things in the, um, in the Law of Moses, um, they are disgusted at uh, the low standard of the things that the Law accepts. How can it be? Accept that. Um, uh, Jesus, being foresighted, provides you with an answer. Mark chapter 10. Some Pharisees come uh, and ask Jesus whether divorce is okay. Jesus says, um, what did Moses say? Uh, the Pharisees say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and divorce her. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, you wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two become one flesh. So, um, the Pharisees, uh, Jesus says, what does the Bible say? The Pharisees say, this is what the Bible says. Jesus says, what else does the Bible say? Uh, And points them to some very different things in Genesis from the things that the Pharisees have quoted in Deuteronomy. Oh, the Bible contradicts itself! Uh, But then Jesus provides um, the Pharisees and the disciples and you and me with a hermeneutical clue, hermeneutical key for understanding the relationship between the rather contradictory-looking things that, it sa- that, that Genesis says about marriage and that Deuteronomy says about divorce. Um, in effect, Jesus, Jesus says, in light of what it says in, Ge- in Genesis, um, you can't simply be blasé about divorce, um, uh, and yet divorce is there in the Torah. So why is divorce there in the Torah? Because of human hardness of heart. That is, um, because marriages do break down. Uh, we, we, we have to kind of live with that. We have to work with that. Um, and so it's, it's of God's grace that there is within the Torah both the declaration of God's vision for marriage back in chapters 1 and 2 and um, a, a regulation that, that makes allowance for the fact that divorces will happen. And what will then happen is particularly that a woman is in a very uh, vulnerable position. Uh, it's not clear what the status is. Uh, and so there's a rule about uh, having some divorce papers in order, she, in order that uh, she can establish what her status is. Um, the Torah then works with what I've called on the sheet both ideal and condescension. God gives people his ideal, but, but when you fall short of God's ideal, God doesn't simply say, okay, you're on your own now. Um, God gives you some more rules that make allowance for the way in which human life does go wrong. Uh, and the tension between God's ideal and God's condescension, both of them as God's gifts, uh, runs through, well, actually runs through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, what Jesus is here doing 
sometimes what people portray Jesus as doing is saying, oh, well, there was this old standard, and now I'm bringing you a new standard. That's not what he's doing. Uh, he's saying, back in the Torah itself, there is the ideal standard and also uh, the, the condescending uh, standard, um, and you need to be able to live with the relationship between them. Uh, and I'd say the same is true within the New Testament. The New Testament, from time to time, accepts some things which looks weird for it to accept. It's much more accepting of slavery uh, than you would have, that you might have expected it to be. But it also says things which subvert the institution of slavery. It's got God's vision and God's ideal. Um, the Old Testament has got God's vision. Um, it's, got, it's, got, it's got God's vision and God's making allowance for human hardness of heart. And the Torah, the Old Testament likewise, has got both God's vision and God's allowance for human hardness of heart. Uh, but when you come across, if you come across an issue where it looks to you as if um, the standard in the Torah is rather low, and you wonder why um, God said that, then that understanding of the relationship between ideal and condescension um, may help you. Third way of thinking about the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament um, is one that's more characteristic of prophecy, um, and that's the, the notion of promise and fulfilment. And I suppose that's the one that Christians come to most instinctively, if you ask, well, what's the Old Testament for in relation to the New Testament, then what the Old Testament is, is for is to prophesy the Messiah. Um, and so the Old Testament is the prophecy or the promise, the New Testament is the fulfilment. Um, Romans, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, I mentioned there on the sheet. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that, so that by steadfastness and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Uh, and Paul goes on to say later on, Christ, uh, in that chapter, Christ has become a servant of the circumcised um, on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, the, um, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two or three things there that seem to me to be significant. Uh, Paul is assuming that in the Old Testament there are promises of which Christ is the fulfilment. Um, though in much of what he says there, he's not talking just about Christ being the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies, or to put it the other way around, the prophecies he's talking about are not just what we will call messianic prophecies. There are lots of things uh, where he and other New Testament writers will see God fulfilling um, in their day uh, declarations, promises that God has made back in the Old Testament which aren't directly or narrowly about Christ. So when God made the promises to the patriarchs which Paul refers to there in verse 8 that is when God said to Abraham I'm going to so bless you that all the world is going to be prayed to be blessed the way that you've been blessed. That's not directly or narrowly a messianic prophecy it's something Jesus the Messiah is going to be the means of, of the fulfilment of that 
But you'd never think when you're reading Genesis 12, oh, that's a messianic prophecy. It's, uh, it's something of rather kind of broader significance than that. And uh, the, the kind of the promises in the Old Testament uh, which need to get fulfilled are broader than merely messianic prophecies in the narrow sense. And the kind of things that the New Testament sees fulfilled when it talks are not just messianic prophecies in the narrow sense. But things about the church, things about the world, as we've got here, um, things about what it means, to, what, what, what ministry means, all sorts of things uh, are promised, foreshadowed uh, in the Old Testament and then fulfilled uh, in the New. And then uh, one other thing that Paul presupposes here, um, well, he, he uses the interesting phrase, that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now what's interesting there is that Paul doesn't say in order that he might fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs. But he might confirm the promises. And one of the implications of that, I think, is that um, in Christ, it, it's not the case that the Old Testament was the period of promise, but they never had any promises fulfilled. And the New Testament is the period of fulfilment, but we don't have to live um, by hoping God's promises now. Both of those are wrong. The guys in the Old Testament knew God's promises, and they also knew fulfilment of God's promises. The guys in the New Testament have known fulfilment of God's promises, but they also are still living in hope. I mean, we better be angry, because this is, if this is fulfilment, well, if this is all there is... We live in hope of the fulfillment of God's promises. And we're able to do that because, Paul says, what God has done in Christ is confirm the promises. That is, he said, yeah, they really were my promises, and the evidence that they were my promises and that they're going to be fulfilled is what I've done in Jesus. Um, in, in Christ, Paul, he says elsewhere in Corinthians, all God's promises find their yes. Um, so it's not, all, not that all God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, but all God's promises are confirmed in Jesus. So that if you weren't sure whether or not to believe these promises before Jesus came, now you can be sure you can believe these promises because Jesus provides you with the evidence uh, for believing in them. Uh, so a bit like that um, ideal and condescension um, antithesis, it works in a way as a difference between Old Testament and New Testament. The Torah has got a lot of condescension. The New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, reaffirms the ideal. But also, within both Old Testament and New Testament, you've got vision and um, realism. As that's the case with the um, Torah teaching type stuff, so is the case with promise and fulfilment. Broadly, the Old Testament is the promise, the New Testament is the fulfilment. But actually, within the Old Testament, there's both promise and fulfilment. And within the New Testament, um, there is both fulfilment and promise. <coughs> mm -hmm. um, would you say the same is true of um, the ideal and condescension? Are you saying that broadly... No, I'm saying that in both cases, both the ideal condescension and the promise fulfilment, you, you can make that distinction between Old Testament and New Testament, but also, both of both is in both. But broadly, Old Testament is ideal? And no, no, the other way around. No, well, no, bro broadly, broadly. I don't think I want to say broadly. Then, no. Um, I'm so, no, I'm more saying 
that w- that um, there are points at which it's true. At which it's, tr- at which it's true. Now I'm more saying a, a lot of the things that we notice about the Old Testament are things that seem to us to be of a low standard. Uh, and Jesus's uh, talk in terms of condescension and vision helps us to uh, to get a handle on that. And then to see that what Jesus is doing, say, in the Sermon on the Mount, is reaffirming the vision. Does that, does that sound okay? Is that all right? Mm, not very. Uh, well, I was just I was just wondering if the, the same pattern follows that you were using, where one seems to have a broader theme, um, and then then the, 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 the opposing. No, I think, but I, I don't I don't think I, perhaps I don't really want to say. Perhaps I really want to say that both is present in both. Um, yeah, that the I'm start I'm starting from the the, the usual Christian or a common Christian way of seeing it is to see the lower standard in the Old Testament and the higher standard in the, in the New, and then to say the Old Testament is promise and the New Testament is fulfilment. That's the common kind of Christian starting point, and I want to say. Uh, okay, there's something in that, but you need to see this complementary, this other thing, in which both are present in both. Alright? And then, fourthly, uh, if one's thinking about uh, the idea of Scripture as revelation, um, then again, I find the very first verse, um, well, the first two verses of Hebrews illuminating. Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Um, now, I think often people take that to mean, assume that that means, that in Christ uh, there were certain limited things that God, said, God revealed through the prophets. But then when, Je- when, when Jesus came, Jesus revealed a whole lot of new things, bigger things. But that's not actually what Hebrews says. That's not the contrast it's drawing. Its, it's contrast is between the many and various ways that God spoke through the prophets. So it was God that spoke, so there couldn't be much wrong with it. But God spoke in many and various ways. Over against the, the unity of the embodiment, uh, of the unity of the, of the way that God spoke, in a way that was embodied in Jesus so, if you think about ways of thinking about um, a redeemer, the Old Testament talks about a Messiah. It talks about the Son of Man. It talks about a prophet. Uh, and it talks about a suffering servant. Um, and you have a hard time seeing how those all relate to each other. They're kind of separate images, ideas. But then along comes Jesus, and Jesus turns out to be the embodiment of all of them. Um, the, the difference is the way in which this one person uh, is uh, a united revelation over against a uh, separate forms of revelation um, that you've got through the prophets. God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by a son. Mm-hmm. Would you also expand that... Uh distinction in a way to like areas of natural theology and not the natural world it's also in itself a revelation sorry what was the last bit you said uh, would you also expand this kind of distinction you're making between various prophets mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. one unitary oh, yeah. embodiment mm-hmm. 
to the idea of natural theology as the natural world is also a revelation. Expand it. Uh, or at least, you know, how, how, how then would you relate that? How would you relate yeah. the idea of natural revelation yeah, sure. to okay. the embodiment of All Christ? Right. Um, the, the, that is, the way I do that is actually by means of my first category of narrative. Because if you ask, there are lots of things. There are lots of things that you can discover empirically through the world. Your, your entire discipline depends on the assumption that we can discover things about how human beings work um, w- without uh, the discipline making uh, overtly Christian presuppositions. It assumes that by research and whatnot, we can discover things about how human beings work. Um, and. Uh, you could talk about that in terms of, you could use that as, as, a, as, as an aspect of natural revelation, natural theology. You can discover there's all sorts of extremely useful things empirically like that. What you can't discover in that way is the fact that God set about a process whereby he would redeem the world um, through uh, a process that he said going through uh, Israel that came to a climax in Christ. Uh, and that it turns out that Christ dying and rising from the dead uh, were key to what what, what, what what God was doing in the world and to our relationship with God. You could do natural theology forever and never discover that. Um, And uh, in terms of where you get that in Scripture, that's why the narrative is so important. That's why the history, the story is important. That's, That's why, if you like, the Bible is dominated by narrative because the central, vital, distinctive thing about the Bible is the thing that you get in the story. Only the Bible. That, that's why the Bible has an authority that the Quran doesn't have. You can learn all sorts of things from the Quran, but you can't discover the story of Jesus from the Quran. Uh, and so that's how I would see, that's how I'd, I would relate natural theology um, to, to the Bible via the centrality of the narrative in the Bible, um, which alone can tell you about the, sto- the story of how God set about redeeming the world. Um, alongside the word revelation at the bottom of the page there, I put the word complementarity. Um, because if it's the case that um, there isn't so much difference between the, um, the content of the things that God revealed when he was speaking to the prophets and the things that God revealed in Christ... <coughs> Uh, then it won't be surprising if there are ways in which these two complement each other. So, um, and the complementarity can work both ways. That is, there, and and an example, well, here are a couple of examples of how the complementarity works. Um, uh, If you're interested in sex, and the age that most of you are, you're interested in sex, um, and the gender that some of you are, you're interested in sex, uh, then the, the New Testament is a bit discouraging, really. Um, but, but when you read the Song of Songs, you go, oh, wow! Um, <laughs> there's a complementarity about the kind of things that Scripture has got to say about sex, in, in which the kind of positive, the, if you, the positive kind of uh, vision for sex that you've got in 1 Corinthians, that you've got in the Song of Songs, is rather more encouraging than what Paul's got to say in 1 Corinthians 7 about, well, if you really can't hold back, then I suppose you're going to get better get married. <laughs> um, 
Now, now both those, it's not that Paul is wrong, uh, it's that there, there are two different perspectives uh, on sex that emerge from those two different places, and there are other things that come from elsewhere, and I'll talk about this later on in the, in the quarter. But the, the, and the vision for the significance of sex in, say, 1 Corinthians and the Song of Songs is very different, but they both have worthwhile things to say. Um, um, another, an opposite kind of example, because they're um, um, inviting you to, to, to take the view that you like the Old Testament a bit more than the New Testament a bit. Um, the other example, the talk about resurrection life, eternal life, it, it works the other way around. Because in the Old Testament, there are, uh, well, there are, really, there are really no references to resurrection life. Um, now, some people think there are some, so at this point, I am the arch-liberal, and you can make allowance for that, um, and you can say I'm exaggerating, but even if I'm exaggerating, if you take, even if you take a, really, a, fairly, a, le- a less extreme position than mine, there are very, very few references um, to uh, a positive resurrection life uh, in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, when you die, you go to Sheol. It's not a place of suffering, there's no hell. Um, but you can't do anything, it's pretty boring. Now, that's the basic nature of it, is to be boring. Um, there, there, isn't, there, there is no um, expectation that you're going to be raised, that we're all going to be raised from, from the dead at the end. In the New Testament, there is that expectation, uh, and it's, it's understandable why there should be that difference, because now Jesus has come, and he has died, and he has risen from the dead. Before Jesus, if you believed in the resurrection, you just believed as a kind of act of faith without any basis. After Jesus has come, believing in the resurrection isn't an act of faith without any basis. It's got some basis for it. Um, the um, one result of that, the, the emphasis on is, is a result is an emphasis on the importance of this life in the Old Testament, but then an emphasis on the importance of the resurrection life in the New Testament. And both of those have got advantages and disadvantages. And obviously, if you're only thinking in terms of this life, then it's a shame that when you die, you die and that's it. Uh, And if you die young, the the Old Testament doesn't mind too much if you get your three score years and ten, but okay. But if you die young, then that's what it agonizes over a lot. It's it's, it's not fair that you shouldn't have your full life. Um, On the other hand, the disadvantage of the New Testament stress on resurrection life is that once you um, uh, are believing in that, you start you stop taking this life seriously, which is what the church has often done. Um, and so both the emphasis on this life in the Old Testament and the emphasis on resurrection life um, in the New Testament have advantages and disadvantages. They have a comp- complementary uh, roles to play within the revelation of Scripture as a whole. So... Uh, when you're looking at an Old Testament passage and you're wondering how to look at that in the context of the New Testament, there are those four kind of models, four ways of, of asking the question you can try and see whether one of them is the one that works with this particular passage. Is this the kind of one where you see it as part of the narrative story and you need to see its place um, in the outworking of that? Is, the, is this one where it's not a very high standard and you need to look at the, the vision that's reasserted in the Sermon on the Mount? Is this a promise that is fulfilled in the New Testament, but still maybe a promise that we live in light of? Or is this one of the points where simply Old Testament and New Testament give you different angles, and the challenge is to 
get a kind of whole picture out of the complementary angles of the two testaments we give. Um, right. Now, one of the things that we're going to do uh, in the in the course is to, is to look at some particular texts of scripture, and that's something that I hope you're going to carry on um, doing. And what I want to do now is to look at uh, an approach to studying a text, which comes on the next two pages um, of the. Uh, Syllabus, pages 15 and 16. Um, and we're going to look at Psalm 147 as an example. Um, and what I'm going to do then is, I'm going to read Psalm 147. If you've got a Bible or if you can get, get online to the, the text of 147, then that will be good. Uh, <clears throat> um... I'm going to read it, uh, and then um, we're going to think about how one might go about understanding it. Now, it's deliberately, it's not a difficult passage. Uh, another kind of misapprehension about interpretation is that the question, the tricky question about interpretation is, is interpreting difficult passages. That's not so. The tricky question about interpretation is interpreting easy passages. It's, it's getting, getting to understand something when... It, you know, you're not problem focused but how nevertheless can I get inside uh, what this in a way a straightforward passage has got to say so here is what in a way is quite a straightforward um, praise psalm psalm 147 praise the Lord how good it is to sing praises to our God for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting the Lord builds up Jerusalem he gathers the outcasts of Israel he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the animals their food and to the young ravens when they cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the speed of a runner. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He grants peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt with us. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. Praise the Lord. Now, um, what I want you to do is to read through the, those two pages uh, that, say, that talk about studying a text. Um, they're designed to be intelligible without me saying anything. Um, so you're going to read them. Uh, and you needn't do things like where it says print out the passage off the internet. You needn't do that at this particular moment. Um, 
but uh, in, in, in that sense you needn't do any of it but, but see if you see uh, if you understand the nature of the, the method uh, of understanding scripture that those two pages outline to you um, and if you want to look across at Psalm 147 which that, uh, those two pages refer to a few times you, you can do that uh, have, have a work through that and see if see in light of those two pages whether there are things you want to say to me about say to me about things you don't understand or how that might spell out or something. So do that on your own. Uh, let's say we'll do that do that on your own for uh, ten minutes and then I'll say uh, let's say seven minutes um, and then I'll then I'll give you five minutes or so to talk with the person next to you about what you've seen. Um, in looking at that, what you think of the, if there's anything you find helpful in it or things that you need help with. Okay? Go.
Okay, if you want to talk to the people on either side about uh, what you've seen or what's puzzled you or what's struck you or anything, then do.
Okay. Um, anything anybody wants to comment on about those um, the two pages on studying a text? I'll ask about. Yes. Question. So uh, the model makes sense. The one thing I was like, how would how would it be used, or would it be used for like historical texts, like just chronology of this happened and this happened? Um, could it be applied? Um, well, I think you could still ask a question like, "What's the thrust of the passage? Can you express in a sentence, it express in a sentence its theme and aim? Uh, what's the structure of a passage? I mean, if you've got a story, then it's got a beginning and a middle and an end, or it's got some things going on. There's some kind of logic um, to it." Um, you can again look for, for instance, changes in forms of speech. Um, you can look. For, you can think about what can you give a title to each of the kind of stages in the story. So not all of it. Uh, you're right that not all of it would be applicable to a piece of uh, narrative, but much of it would be old thought. Yeah. And certainly things like um, does the passage say anything that contrasts with something a pastor said in a sermon once, or your sense that God wouldn't do or say that. Uh, you know some of those kind of things. <laughs> Uh, are exactly what happens in stories. I mean, I love it when people in Fuller, I send them off to read stories in Genesis or somewhere, and people are scandalized. Why is that kind of story in the Bible? You know, that's when, that's, it's, that's, that's when things get interesting. So, so, but you're right, some of these questions would apply more with some sorts of passages than others. Yeah. Right, so then the, my follow-up question to that would be like, how do I know which text am I just... Kind of making up my own interpretation or thrust, or is it in the text? Like those particular, like, yeah. like those unique stories where God did something yeah. scandalous or strange, you know, like kind of built theology on that, or an example where I, um, well, this feels to me like an example. You can tell me whether it is an example for you. But the beginning of the book of Job, where this strange character, the adversary, it's not really Satan, but, but the, um, uh, the opponent in the story, is given by God the power uh, to go and do these terrible things to Job. Um, now, um, I... Um, that's that, that's that's a rather worrying story, good story, I think. Um, and um, it's, it's it's I find it hard, hard to think of another passage of scripture that talks in the same way. Um, and so, on the other hand, who's to say that God doesn't do some weird things? Um, 
So I'm a bit Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday about that. Do you know what I mean by that? <laughs> now, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think um, th this is like one of those elements in Jesus' parables where with Jesus' parables, you're not to, you're not to take to every aspect of the detail and build a doctrine on it. And so with the book of Job, maybe that's just a bit of scene setting and I shouldn't build a doctrine on that. That's what I think on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. But on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I think... Well, this book is about God being able to do what he likes, and if God can, God can do what he likes, God can do that, and I kind of have to live with it. But the process is one in which I'm seeking to fit this story with my general understanding of the way that God works and the kind, other kind of things that Scripture says about the way that God works. Um, I suppose another example would be, I mean, nobody... Okay, the millennium only comes in one chapter in the Bible. That three verses, in fact, in the Bible. So nobody would ever build a theology on the millennium, would they? Except that most of you probably come from churches that did. Uh, a lot of churches do. Now, there's something kind of that, that's like building a theology on the first two chapters of the book of Job. That is, to, to take something which only comes in one passage and make it kind of central to your theology, there must surely be something wrong with. But to have somewhere on the edge of your theology, the millennium, or God letting the adversary have his way with Job, maybe one can kind of cope with. Uh, so it's, 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 it's not a problem then about interpreting this particular passage. It's how you see this passage in the context of the whole. Uh, well, on, the, on, the, on page 17, um, I've outlined Psalm 147. Um, and just a couple of things about how that approach to studying a text I find kind of illuminating uh, here. Um, what I think, is, what I find um, striking about Psalm 147 is the way in which three, as it says at the top there, you get three invitations to worship, and then three times you get the reasons why you should worship. So it's praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. For he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. And then in verse 7 it's sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the, the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, makes grass grow on the hills. Verse 13 it's praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates, he blesses your children within you. And to see how in a psalm, as is often the case with that kind of psalm actually, you get a kind of invitation challenge to worship, and then the reasons for worship, helps me to get inside the, the guts of how um, worship works in this example and lots of examples. Um, and then how in each of the three, in effect you've got three stanzas, three, three verses in our sense of um, in verses in this psalm. Uh, and each of the three stanzas have got the invitation and then the, and then the, uh, the reasons, the challenge and then the reasons. Um, and, uh, and the reasons all appeal to things about creation. Uh, so me um, noting the structure helps me to get a think into the guts of the, the way that the psalm works, what it's got to say, how it talks to God. Um, there are then lots of examples of um, imagery pictures, which the uh, emphasis on uh, images in, the, in that studying a text thing uh, pushes me to, to take seriously.
Um, okay, now if you go over the page again, on page 18, there's a thing called guidelines for interpretation. Um, and those are all, you'll see 30 points, um, all of which actually I think came out, no, they didn't all come out of Genesis 1 to 3, but then most of them came out of Genesis 1 to 3. They were about the only good thing that came out of the first time I taught this course when it was a total disaster. <laughs> Because one of the things that we did was uh, study the opening chapters of Genesis and, and attempted to collect insights on it. We did, we did this kind of learning interpretation inductively, trying to discover from reading passages like that what were, the, what were some uh, guidelines for interpretation. So uh, there are 30 insights from guys who've now got their PhDs, I suppose, probably, uh, in the School of Psychology, or the CIDES, or have been practicing MFT for four or five years now, three or four years now. Um, so for um, five minutes or so again have a read down those 30 points um, and see if there are any of them that strike you or that you want to comment on or ask questions about uh, bearing in mind as I said that as, as most of them say they, they arise out of the only chapter of Genesis
Well, any of those anybody would like to comment on, or you don't, know, don't understand them, or, or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you wouldn't be able to know that one simply by reading the text itself. That's the kind of thing you'd only discover through reading a commentary. Yeah, that's right. Um, there, there are probably other examples. Um, I immediately think of one. Um, well, maybe the creation and science one. Where's that's, that's there, so, uh, the previous one, isn't it? Yeah. That um, when we're preoccupied by the question of science and, and creation and evolution and all those kind of questions with regard to Genesis 1 um, we can probably work out that that isn't the question that the text was answering um, that is, well I suppose the presupposition which we have to keep coming to uh, which, I need, which we probably need to keep coming back to is when the Holy Spirit inspired any of these scriptures what the Holy Spirit was doing first was speaking to the people who um, these scriptures were originally given to. So, so there are people in Israel who are listening to these stories read out. Or there in some early Christian congregation uh, is, is the Christians meeting on a Sunday and somebody's reading out of a gospel. Um, and the things there are things that are designed to communicate with them. And so... We're asking the question with the gospel or with Genesis one. How would that have communicated? What, what was the Holy Spirit communicating to them? Uh, now, when and when we get focused on the Genesis and science question with regard to Genesis one, then we must be thinking about a question to which they weren't trying to provide the answer. Um, and and so to, uh, it might then be possible to think our way into. Uh, well, how, how would I read this? What, what, what kind of questions would this be answering for me that wouldn't be the Genesis and Science type questions? You look bemused. Is that how you always look? <laughs> Have you any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> now you're smiling at me. That's very nice. No, but look, do look. It's really important you should look. When you're puzzled, look puzzled. <laughs> then I know I'm in trouble, and I need to know that I'm in trouble. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm just thinking there are a lot of questions that I'm going to not know that I should be. No, that's true. That's true. But again, that's, that's like being a therapist, isn't it? First time you meet the person, you don't know what the questions are. And what the game is about over weeks and weeks is discovering what the right question is. Quest asking questions is so important, isn't it? Uh, but, but, but it doesn't happen all at once. Yeah. So... So, just the first, okay, first time, you only get a bit. But that's why carrying on studying scripture um, is, is enthralling, because next week I might think of another question that it was actually answering and might see a bit more of it. Or it's like, it's like the ongoing relationship between two friends or between a husband and a wife. You, you keep discovering new things. It's not, it's, uh, yeah. So, so, so try and see that as a positive, not a, a negative, yeah. How 
Well, no, 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 scripture over two years. It's the opposite, isn't it? That is, re- re- read all of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, not, not, just, not just the bits that you like. Um, yeah. No, you should go home and go to bed. Uh, start tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, it said, I think you said before to, you, um, to consult uh, commentaries after yeah. um, several things. Are there some general guidelines using these 30 steps that we should kind of keep in mind? Because like, step three is not, like, that's out of order. Yeah, so yeah. Th- these, they, these, they aren't steps in that sense. They are, these, are, these are, as they came out from the discussion I had with the class. So they're, in that sense, they're random. Um, uh, is there a logical order? Is there like a general theme that you're saying? Like, um, well, that's that, that other studying the text stuff is more. If there's a if there's a system, mm-hmm. if there's an approach, then that suggest, that's more like yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a systematic approach. And as you say, the, consulting the commentaries comes there, but comes near the end. But, but, I mean, again, it's, it's like most things in life. You know, if you try to, uh, um, you know, to describe what it's like to learn to, wh- how, how to ride a bicycle, uh, or, or lots of things, you, you again, like, like doing therapy, it's, there's a kind of, you can lay it out logically, but it doesn't work out logically. So I wouldn't worry too much about the right order. Mm-hmm. Should there be one interpretation? I mean, yes, list. and mine is right. <laughs> Go on. No, sorry. I was just going to say that uh, going through the list, you can see a lot of them are asking modern questions. Go back to mm. the historical mm. stuff, the mm. cultural context. There are some postmodern people, mm. intertextuality, mm. concerns, how it's how is it serving men. Mm. But, you know, those questions, you'll come up with a different interpretation. And, mm. and I... In a way, I was recent tradition that says there's one interpretation mm. and how we have understood mm. it for the last hundred years, that's it. Oh, well, that's true, yeah. But there are two things there, and there's the second one, there's the questionable one, isn't it? That is, that, uh, let, let me go back, let me say again the way I was putting it just now. When Genesis 1, or anything else, uh, Matthew 1, w- was uh, devised by a human author and inspired by the Holy Spirit, the human author and the Holy Spirit wanted to say something to somebody. And when I'm reading scripture, I'm trying to discover what they were sa- what they were trying to say to somebody. Now, all those modern kind of postmodern kind of approaches um, may may help me to understand what they were trying to t- say to somebody. Whereas, on the other hand, my conviction about what what my church has said for the last hundred years about what it means may actually be wrong about what it was originally saying. Uh, so, I think you can have that openness without. Um, going for total um, subjectivity, and it doesn't have a meaning. No, it was an exercise in communication, and I want to get back to that. Yeah. Well, let me first of all read to you Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, which says, Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be like a fool yourself. 
Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. It says contradictory things in two successive verses. Um, and that's... Uh, and both of those are expressions of insight, and it's a judgment call as to which one you decide applies now. Um, and, uh, and that will be the case with different sort of uh, approaches to interpretation. There are, or to put it another way, there are strengths and weaknesses, insights and dangers about both those two proverbs, and there are strengths and weaknesses and insights and dangers about both those two um, approaches to interpretation. So you, you, all you can do is be aware of that. Bringing modern questions... Um, was it What number was the second one the, near the bottom? The, sorry, 14, was it? Okay. Um, what makes sense to us uh, may, may enable us to see some things that were there, or may enable us to see that the, what makes sense to us needs to be corrected. But, but in one sense, we can't help but look at the text in light of what makes sense to us. Um, and so let's be self-conscious about that, uh, and let's do it. Uh, but let's recognise it's what we're doing, so that we can see that we need to reframe what makes sense to us, if that's what emerges from Scripture. Okay, last one. You, yes. What a great question for 19 minutes past nine. I'd like a week to think about that. Does interpretation impact our salvation? And does our salvation impact our interpretation? Um, Does interpretation impact our salvation? Oh, (laughs) okay, go on then. Jesus died for you, and that what counts is that you trust in him, you can make all sorts of mistakes about the millennium. <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing that's going to impact you, I mean, yeah, in deciding your salvation and impacting your Christian life are two different things, aren't they? But in order to be saved, you don't need to be an expert of hermeneutics. You need to believe that Jesus died for you. Um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but being able to interpret scripture in a way that enables it to get home to us has huge potential to shape our lives as human beings and Christians. Okay, go away. See you next Monday. <laughs>
Yeah. 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 So you're from America. I'm from Europe. So, uh huh. So I wish again. First world. <laughs> now between us, second world, third world. Developing. Five, third world. Fight it out. Fight it out. Wait. Oh wait, you're in a bad part of here. <laughs> you're in a bad section of yeah. here. So you're second. I'm second. <laughs> yeah. Male trumps female. Come on. Oh. Male third world. Mm. No. It's easier. Yeah. Even. Mm. Paper scissors. <laughs> Nobody, I remember that part you were saying. I, I the squeaky wheel gets the grease, though. <laughs> Sneak it up there at first. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. We have a whole hierarchy here. <laughs> I'm just actually trying to stir up this engine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you're You're Romanian. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. 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 Go do some gymnastics. Or steal something. You're good at gymnastics, right? And stealing. Yeah? yeah. Well, I mean, if you're good at gymnastics, you can steal, uh, clearly. Here's your wallet back to you. Oh, so you're like feeling his wallet here, No, just stealing. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even feel it. Yeah. See? Gentle. I did. <laughs> Gentle. So are you waiting for Dr. Golden Day as well? Yes. Okay. Do you want to follow up, up on your question? question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you're waiting for Dr. Logan to be Yes, I think we all are. We're waiting.
Oh, what a sinister-looking collection. Yeah. Okay, so line. I we got all, dibs. We did paper, rock, scissors. It was a whole and debate. And plus, he's American. I'm American. Taller, white, wasp. Blonde hair, blue eyes. International student. Kind of greasy. Just wait here patiently while they can post their will on. I actually have to work at 5.15 in the morning, so I think I should. But I have a quick question, and I, maybe not even, maybe don't even want to answer right now, but I wanted to, I was to follow up on the, um, darn it, ideal versus condescension. Yeah. I am going to talk about that some more in two or three weeks. I was only trying to learn it. Okay. Well, then, this is... Yeah, I have some of the questions. I'll in regard to Ray Anderson, I think, how he presented it, and I took a reconciliation and healing a person's class, and he kind of presented the Old Testament as um, God wanted them to fulfill this, mm-hmm. uh, but they couldn't fulfill it, so God came down and fulfilled it for them and through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was almost the ideal was for human, humanity to fulfill mm-hmm. God's mm-hmm. call, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sure, but yeah. the condescension was sending Jesus. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a difference... But I think it's hard to say that Jesus is a condescension. Well, I can I can see it, but it's using condescension in a different sense from the way I was using it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, God, yeah, yes, it's it's it's. it's uh, and then yeah. my, I guess my other question, my, my question is, is there is there like a hierarchy? Is one better than the other? The ideal versus condescension is is one better? Because it seems like there's these two pitted against well, each other well, throughout. Yeah. But do they have to be one as good as one and one is bad? I guess, or one is not as good or better. Wait until we do it. When, I come to, when we come to that in the course, let's push it some more. Then can we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, I just wanted to just just thought was on my mind. I couldn't yeah, get, yeah. get it out unless I said it. So. Okay, so you're <laughs> that would be true. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay, yeah. Right. Just want, yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. Something yeah. I was interested yeah. in. Yeah. See you, Sean. There goes the uh, oh, yeah. white American. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the Philippines will rise again. <laughs> Some way, somehow, we will rise again. No? Okay. Seven. No, sorry. Hey, John, no, no, seriously, again. they had other questions. Come on, then. Oh, get a minute. I, I got a wife to go home to. <laughs> um, to follow up on your um, response to my question, yeah. uh, what about cults? They believe in Jesus and that he's their salvation too. Do they? Which cults? Seventh day Adventists do if you call them a cult, but I wouldn't precisely because they do believe in Jesus. Right. And I mean a lot of people call Mormons cults too. Well again, Mormons are a grey area. I mean you know that we're we're in quite a lot of dialogue with Mormons. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Mormons are more affirming uh, if you like justification by faith now than they traditionally would have done. Okay. But that's the that's the New Testament's criteria is do you believe in Jesus as your savior? Mm-hmm. If a Mormon believes in that, then, then, then they're right with God. They're, they're in heaven. Mm-hmm. And the fact they've got some heresies, okay, we've all got That's some okay. heresies. <laughs> well, they're not okay, but I mean, you know, fuller is full of people with heresies. I'm the only person who believes all the truth. <laughs> so at the, the school of psychology. Is interpretive, yeah. Mm. So at the school of psychology, they're all full of heretics. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Not, as, not as full of heretics as the school of theology. <laughs> True. The conservative ones are SIS. <laughs> and those are musicians. Okay. I don't have a question. I'm just going to watch. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, I just want to go back to my question uh, about. Uh, having one right interpretation. I guess 
And I already raised this question before in the Pentateuch class, but once more, we just with the challenge of postmodernism where they say everything can be a valid interpretation versus right. modernism that says there's one true interpretation. Is there some kind of middle line or a good no. position for Christians to take? Well, yeah, uh, well, yeah. But let me rephrase. Let me re reframe the modernism, postmodern thing, mm -hmm. as I probably did in the Pentateuch course. Um, that pre-modern and modern and postmodern have all got strong points and weak points. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a strong point about modern is an assumption on objectivity of meaning. Mm -hmm. A weak point about postmodern is, a, is everything goes. There is no one meaning. And I, I, I would have said that the gospel depends on the notion of God acting and doing something and speaking in history objectively, and uh, a postmodern perspective includes my recognizing that I don't understand that as much about that as I might have done as somebody 50 years ago thought they did. I realize that I'm only seeing the edges of God's garment. But I am seeing some objective truth, some objective truths. Um, that seems to me to be tied up with the gospel. So something like holding attention once more? Well, it's not, not really attention. Well, or like there. There can be wrong interpretations, but there can also be ma many interpretations of one pericope or one piece of scripture. No, no, there are, no, no. In in principle, mm -hmm. there's one interpretation of a pericope. Okay. Uh, now, now there can be um, multiple the, applications. There can, there, there can be multiple applications. That's okay. right. There certainly can be. The way I put it, but again, I think we'll come to this later in the quarter probably uh -huh. is. There's what there can be. There is one meaning, but there can be many significances. Mm. I find the difference between meaning and significance helpful. Okay. So, what this passage means is, it's objective the same. Uh -huh. But what it may signify to you, and what God, what God may say through it to you, in the way that applies to your life, and what, what God may see through it to say through it to me in the way that applies to my life, okay. can be different. Okay. So your position is there is one interpretation. My position is there is one interpretation. <laughs> I would have followed up with what's your question, but I, you need to go home. We all need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, okay. Dr. Golden. Right.
Hey, it's John Goldinger again. I've realised that I need to take this thing home because I need to put it onto my computer. Is that okay? Um, I'm thinking anyway that on the assumption I succeeded, I don't see why I shouldn't carry up, you know, be doing this this quarter. So how do I, if I want to book out, I mean, can I book the thing out for the quarter, do you know? Okay, it's great. So I'll, I'll hold on to it unless I hear otherwise. Thanks, Chris. Bye then.
All right, thank you. See you tomorrow. So tomorrow you will... Uh, Take the car. Yeah, I'll try it. Sorry. I'll try. I'm 8.30. Yes. Unless, unless you want to come at 8 o'clock. When? <laughs> if you want. Can you wake up? Oh, you want... Uh, yeah, it's okay. It'll be okay. Be, so yeah. I can then go a bit early, because they, they, they like the car as early as possible, you see. Uh, oh, okay. Will that be okay? Well, thank you. All right. Okay, thank you. <laughs>